Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera in the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded in late February 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic descended on us. The focus is on trust and confidence in organizations, governments, and employers. Our guest, Valerie Braith Braithwaite, reflects on what leads to and what detracts from trust. We consider the release of this podcast a bit delayed now, but to be quite timely given the circumstances. Hope you enjoy the episode. I'm Susan Bigger, and today I'm here with Professor Val Braithwaite. Val, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a regulation scholar. I, I do research on regulation at the Australian National University. I come at regulation from a background in psychology. I was a social psychologist and I thought a lot of those principles of social psychology should be brought into the regulatory area. You've written widely on how governments and organisations can rebuild the trust of the public. That gives the impression that you think they may have lost it. I do think we have some problems with trust and certainly a lot of research has shown across the Western world that trust in government has been going down and that's been happening for some time. That's not a, a sudden event. But I think there are reasons for doing that. I think there are, there's a distancing that is occurring between government and people and particularly between regulators and people. People expect regulators to protect them and I think a lot of the time those expectations are not being met. What about trust on, on the other side? Do you think there are, are there issues around um, trust of those regulated I think that when you, when any new regulatory body is set up, and APRA is actually a relatively new regulatory body, then everyone really runs for cover <laughs> because regulation does intrude upon people's freedom and our reaction always is keep your distance. We don't want to get too involved with you. But APRA's done a, a marvellous job, I think, over its 10 years in trying to build trust and build a, a sense of community. Because what everyone always fears with regulation is that they won't just interfere with the freedom of those who are doing the wrong thing, they'll also interfere with the freedom of those who are doing their best and, and doing really outstanding things. Certainly in health practitioner regulation is the majority yes. of practitioners. So what does trust mean to people? Trust, whether it's between an organisation and government or between two organisations or between people, is much the same. It's about being reliable and dependable. Mm. It's about um, being competent and able to deliver what you promise to deliver. But it's also about listening and being respectful and understanding the position of the other and that's important for trust because we can't always do exactly what we say we will do for someone else. We might have to take a step sideways and if we don't know them and we don't understand their needs that step is going to be one that could potentially harm them and then definitely destroy the trust relationship that we have. Mm -hmm. So trust is a multifaceted concept but I think it doesn't matter what level we're talking about, they, they are the essential ingredients of trust to meet expectations and to help rather than harm. How do organisations know when they're trusted by the public? 
Well, these days they usually give out uh, surveys to their stakeholders. That's mm. the that's the usual way. But I, but I think there are other signs of trust. I I think um, a sign of trust is when you're given confidential information that could be damaging to someone. That is a sign that you're being considered trustworthy enough to hold that information and not cause trouble. I actually think that when people complain a lot, that is almost a sign of of trust in this sense that they think it's worthwhile to lodge a complaint with you. They expect you to do something about it and they certainly don't expect to be harmed themselves. So that may not be an intimate trust relationship but it is a relationship that satisfies those basic criteria of trust of expectations and not doing harm. Mm. I wonder if you can give us some examples of what a trustworthy organisation looks like. I would... Describe a trustworthy organisation as one that has transparency and that is open, that will admit when it makes mistakes and to be very conscientious about correcting those mistakes. I think apology is a sign of a trustworthy um, organisation. I think branding and spin undermine trust. That's not to say there isn't a place for advertising and education through advertising. But I think these days people are are fairly cynical Mm. about um, brands and advertising that sets expectations that are are way above what anyone would consider reasonable. And and what about if we move into thinking about trust and confidence specifically in regulation? It's a complex issue because let me say first of all, uh, we don't want a situation where the regulator and those they are regulating are sitting down doing deals with each other. We call that capture in regulatory speak. And, of course, an enormous harm can be done to the public. So that kind of, I suppose, it's very close to corruption, isn't Mm. it? That's not what we're meaning when we're talking about a regulator having a trusting and trustworthy relationship with those they regulate. But in order to influence people... We have to respect people, we have to listen to people and regulation more than anything else is about um, influencing people, influencing behaviour, influencing understanding. Uh, So much of a a regulatory task if you're steering the flow of events in in a new direction is making people aware of what's happening, give them confidence, motivate them to make the change because often it is inconvenient. Um, and then making sure they have the pathways to achieving that change. Now, that's quite a complex thing. I might I might add that, that that's exactly what health professionals do whenever they have a client or a patient come to see them. Um, so really the mm. regulator's job is very much like the health professional's job in that sense, that, that they're trying to steer the majority in a particular direction. Now, we mustn't forget there are those who are seriously breaking the rules and doing harm, the treatment of that group is quite different from the treatment of those who need a little bit of help to just get on the right side of the regulations, put it that way. So it sounds like the regulators, you're saying they they also have some choices about where they place their emphasis. Do they place they emphasis do. on the majority or on that minority who are behaving poorly? And that's something that they're balancing all the time. And it's not static and it can't be static, particularly if you introduce a new scheme. For instance, if, if you have a, a scheme where there is a lot of money to be had from the federal government, say, 
that's a time when you look for instances of abuse of that money, of scams, of of people pretending to be accredited professionals when they're not, etc. Because the pots of money are, are calling. So in that situation, you might be very much on your guard about preventing harm. But at the same time, you've got to be holding everyone in there with a new scheme, with new workloads, new paperwork to do, helping them deal with the, the new circumstances they face. So it, it's really, you're doing two things. You're helping and supporting, but also monitoring those that are willing to cooperate with you, but also taking action to prevent harm from those that have said stay at, la- at arm's length, I don't want to have anything mm. to do with you. So if we say that re- that regulators have um, maybe two, so in our case, have two separate communities that they're trying to build trust with, mm. a, a kind of trust with those that they regulate, as we've talked mm. about, not capture, but a trust mm. and confidence. And then there's also the, the public or patients who, mm. uh, in the case of opera, who we're here to, to serve and protect. Mm. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how regulators could work with communities and the, and the public to to build their trust. It's an interesting situation, isn't it, where you have a regulator who is having most contact with an organisation or a, a group of professionals, but really your whole purpose in being is to to care and protect the public, mm. and uh, you often don't have much contact. That's with. right. That's right. So it so it is a challenge, and I, I think it's a context where good stories um, really really help. Uh, but I also think that regulators these days don't have the resources uh, to do all the work that needs to be done, and they need to bring to bring the community in to solve the the little problems, uh, and they're never little to the people experiencing them. But so often uh, it's not uh, that we find ourselves very distressed and making complaints about things that haven't gone wrong, but there have been many causes. Um, Sometimes we're just so unlucky that someone hasn't caught the ball uh, because healthcare is complex. Um, uh, In those sorts of situations, I think... Conflict resolution, discussion at the community level is really important. And I think the community can be involved in that. I even think they can lead some of those discussions because what's critical for trust is that when people are distressed and upset, there's someone to talk to immediately. They they have someone to talk them through the options. Sometimes we just need someone to listen to us in that situation. Uh, for an organisation like APRA, they, they can do a little bit of that, but they, they're limited. And they certainly can't uh, do very much when we're talking about a community that's, that's uh, in, in, in the centre of Australia, for yep. instance. So I think there's much more, uh, not only APRA, but every regulator uh, can do to use community to steer the flow of events in a, a more productive direction. It doesn't mean there won't be court action or serious consequences, but most cases actually can be settled through discussion, cups of coffee, and peer-to-peer regulation. Mm. Remembering that regulation is simply being a check on each other. It's a continuum. Mm. It is. Back to the idea of practitioners, uh, we know that regulators effectively intrude on the lives of those that they regulate. You've mm. sort of alluded to that. Mm. People, uh, those who are regulated, generally tolerate that intrusion. Mm if they see the regulator as bringing some benefits, um, as delivering more 
uh, fairness to the system, and if they feel a moral obligation mm -hmm. maybe to accept that regulation and cooperate, that's a big ask. How does a regulator achieve those, what we might call, three planks? Well, let's think about an area where that works and we don't we don't spend any time worrying about it at all most of us don't like going to the doctor it's not our favorite activity but when we go to the doctor what we're looking for are benefits we want to come out feeling better um, we're looking for fair treatment we want to be listened to and we don't want to be discriminated against we want to be helped and and the doctor expects us to do what she or he advises us to do and we do all those things and we might be a bit cranky if we've had to wait too long or if we don't like our medication but by and large that's a relationship of trust which we accept mm. now that's an intimate relationship and that's a regular routine one for, for many of us but if we move to regulation the same principles apply but it may be the mechanism of delivery has to be has to be different. People need to understand that through the regulation, there are more benefits to be gained than than losses mm. to their freedom. So you also talk about a, a concept called motivational posturing. Can you explain it, that to us? The idea of motivational posturing came in early on when I was doing work on regulation, and. Of course, we always expect there to be very rational reasons for people not to comply with laws and rules. And so I, was, I had all the rational reasons set out there, but none of them worked. And what I found would, was that the critical factor was how people uh, positioned themselves and felt about the person or the organisation doing the regulating. And we have quite a rich literature in social psychology on social distance, how we align ourselves with people we don't like but keep a distance from those that we don't. So I transferred that to the area of, of regulation and thought, well, okay, regulators are potentially threatening. Let's keep... Uh, it makes sense that we want to keep our distance. But by the same token, if we believe there are benefits and we believe it's fair then that, that makes it a more complex decision um, um, that we have to make about how we position ourselves. And so what I found with these um, motivational postures, and I call them motivational postures because I don't think we ever really understand people's deep motivations. You know, I think this talk that what motivates them, oh, I think that's complex and, and we often pretend we know more than we do. But certainly we can read the way in which people look at us, um, their postures, the signals, the social signals they're sending to us about whether they want to ask that question or not ask that question, whether they want to answer a question or not. So that was the, the, the essence, if you like, social signalling that was part of, of motivational postures. There is a space for building that trust and confidence and moving people into a more positive reaction yeah. or positive relationship with the regulator. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing to, to mention is that these postures, I'm not, I'm not talking about types of people. I'd, I'd, I'd say we all can be, we all have those postures within us. As children, we learn. If you think back, you will think of instances where you've been all, the, all of those things. And so the task of the regulator is to pull out the positive postures, to establish the relationship, explain the benefits, the fairness, mm -hmm. call on moral obligation to get 
the best postures to the fore and be tolerant of resistance because it may be telling us something very important about the inadequacies in our regulatory system. And it's interesting because uh, many people, when they think about regulation, they wouldn't think about relationship necessarily. And yet, to me, a lot of what you've been talking about is actually about relationship, even if it's large scale or one-on-one, but it's about how do you have a good relationship with people you regulate and with your regulator is that right exactly right you can't be a regulator in a democracy without having lots of relationships and having community to support your purposes and the way in which you're operating well that's a fantastic way to end thank you so much val i've been here today with professor val braithwaite thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode if you have any feedback or questions please email communications at opera.gov.au To hear more of our podcast, please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the Opera website.